You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. The reading for this week is from Genesis chapter 46, verse 28. To Genesis chapter 47, verse 31. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while, because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt, and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Remesis, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, 
all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields, because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Hi, everyone. Um my name is Joash. Um, it's a great pleasure to be with you here today on a Tuesday night. I'm reading through parts of the Bible. Um, we've been reading through a story about a guy called Joseph this semester. And I just, I wonder if anyone is new here, you may be here after the debate, um, wondering what do we do? Um, or you might be new to CU and you've come halfway through the series. Um, what I could say is it, it may feel like you've walked into a class of like comparative literature. <laughs> What we're going to be doing is reading a story from the early part of the Bible 
to show us what Jesus is like. Jesus comes back at the later part of the Bible, and we're reading about his great, 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 great uncle, Joseph. And in Joseph's life, we see a pattern of what Jesus is like. And as we read Joseph's story, we get to see a maybe a bigger, clearer, more beautiful understanding of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And that's what we're going to be doing this semester uh, today. And so stick with us. Um, see how Joseph may show us more about Jesus, the person who well, Christianity is all about. Um, you may notice, though, as we're doing this, that um, what we do with the Bible here is it's not just a vibe or a guideline, um, but we're going to be talking about it as if it's history and that actually our lives rest on it, on the words that we're going to be reading today. And if you have questions about that, please turn to the person next to you afterwards and ask, why do you think this is real? Because it matters. It really does matter. Um, we believe these things happened and they have a bearing not just on the Christians here, but everyone, no matter what you think of Jesus. And so with that, um, we're going to be reading through Joseph's story. And we've been asking this question this semester, which is, uh, what will the royal snake crushing seed be like? Um, in the beginning of time, um, God made the world and he made people and he loved them dearly, but they rejected him, rebelled against him. Um, and because of that, they were cursed with death. And God made a promise to those early humans saying, there's going to be a child that's going to come, a seed of this woman and this man, who's going to make all things right, kind of reverse that curse. And as we've been tracking through the early part of the Bible, we're starting to get a bit of a picture of what this seed is like. And we've learnt that they're going to be a king and they're going to crush God's great enemy. And that's where we're going today. Now, um, the thing about Old Testament is that we've been talking about how it's like a thread. Um, lots of different chords running through in one great story. And as we're reading through parts of the Bible, there are lots of things that we could uncover and unpack. But the problem with this picture is that it, it kind of implies that all the chords are the same size. Um, I like this picture better. It is a picture of a cheese sausage. Um, I really like cheese kranskis. Is that what you call them? I think they are. Yeah. <laughs> You're German, right? Yeah. So I got, I got approval. Um, and what is interesting about a cheese kransky, I, I think I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, is that there are blobs of cheese that run it's not clicking well. Matt, do you mind? There we go. Run through the sausage, right? At any point in time. But no one cuts a sausage like that, right? Unless you're a sociopath. What you do <laughs> is you eat it like this, right? You cut it cross-sectionally. And at any point of time, one of the cheese globs is going to be greater or bigger than the other one. And that's kind of what Old Testament narrative is like. There are cords that run through or cheese globs that run through. And what we're doing this semester is we've got a whole story of Joseph from chapter 37 to chapter 50. That's like one big cheese sausage. And what we're doing for the sake of time is we're carving up little bits. And it can run the risk that we forget that it's actually a unified whole. What's the point of the Joseph narrative? As we've established, one of the main things that it's trying to do is illustrate what the royal snake crushing seed is going to be like to tell us about Jesus. That's one of the main reasons that's there. But naturally, at any point in time, when we cut up a part of the story, something just springs out on the page and becomes really obvious that we've got to talk about it. And so the question is, what, what's the cheese glob of today? <laughs> well, 
we start the story with a man called Jacob and it ends with Jacob. It starts with someone who's given a promise. We're reading chapters 46 and 47. And at the end of the chapter, uh, end of these two chapters, he's kind of dying. Almost, It's like it, we get like last right vibes. And he's been given a promise by God. And the question that we need to think about today is, does God keep his promise to, um, to Jacob? That's not clicking. I think it's jammed. That's a shame. Might just keep going. Oh, I can just press it here, can't I? Does God keep his promise to Jacob? And the reason that this question is important is I think it's going to illustrate something about the entire Joseph narrative of how we should read it, how we should interact with it, which is what we may call promise fulfillment. Now, Joseph's narrative is at the end of Genesis, but it's also, it's also at the start of Exodus. It kind of bridges these things together. And what we may see is that um, Joseph um, is living in this time and he, thanks Anita, he looks back um, and sees that God has made lots of promises to bless Israel. And in this time, God has been really kind to Joseph. Um, he's, blessed, um, he's blessed them. He's kept them safe through famine. And they are now... Thanks. <laughs> That's okay. I can make it work. Okay. Yes, yeah. That's okay. I'll just stand here. Um, they look back because in the future, they don't know what's going to happen, right? They're in the land of Egypt. They're in a land of famine. They're being cared for, but they don't know what the future holds. But you do, don't you? You know what's about to happen to them. They are about to go into, get this, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. So if we fast forward a bit to the time where they're in slavery, and they're looking forward to the future. How is God going to solve this? What we see in the Joseph narrative is God's amazing act of redemption. He saved them through really hard times. And what we see is a pattern whereby God's people need to look backwards. They need to look backwards to get hope for the future. And that's exactly what we're going to see today. And so this question, um, does God keep his promise to Jacob? It matters. It matters deeply because it tells us how God operates. It tells us how God keeps his promises. And when you look forward to a future that's uncertain, hard, scary, it matters deeply, does God keep his promise? And so we're going to just be looking at one person, the person of Jacob. Does God keep his promise to Jacob? Turn with me as we read um, from the start of chapter 46. Um, Israel, that's another name for Jacob, set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Jacob is afraid. God says, do not be afraid. Why might he be afraid? Why might there be cause for Jacob's fear? Now, we, we've actually read this passage before early in the semester. But earlier in the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to one of Jacob's, uh, to his grandpa, Abraham, and says to him, um, I'm going to bless you richly. However, 
know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and after they'll come out with the great possessions. Now, he ought to have known that. And now he has to go to a foreign land, to Egypt. And, and it kind of happens, doesn't it? They end up as slaves. And what we're going to see in this passage is what you may call the echoes of Exodus. It's just littered with things that are telling us that slavery is about to come. And it's almost like this passage has been written to remind the people in the future to look back and see what has God done? What has God done for his people? They're going to be slaves in a foreign land. And you get the sense from God's promise to Jacob, I will be, I will be with you, I'll go down with you, that almost he should anticipate something bad, that something hard is going to happen. And what's interesting is all he's given in this chapter, in 46, is a promise. He's given a promise. What did God say? I will go down with you and I will surely be with you. I'll show you bring you back again. Now, um, Jacob is probably thinking about all sorts of things. I'm not sure if he's really got the big picture in mind about um, the slavery that's about to happen. He might be thinking, you know, he's really old at this point. What if I die along the way? Uh, what if we don't make it? Will Joseph really, is he really alive? There's lots of questions that might be going through his mind. He's going to make this perilous journey to Egypt to survive, to get food, to live. But in the midst of that, all he has is this promise, I will surely bring you back again. And that's the promise that God makes to Jacob at the start of this story. And so we see, and I want you to see, to, to think about this passage that we just, this little bit here. Does God keep this promise to Jacob? Does it come true? That's what we're going to explore today. And so we go to now Jacob's reunion. He goes down, of course, into the land of Egypt. He takes um, 70 sons and daughters. We skip that, probably because it's quite long. Uh, feel free to read it in your own time. It lists all the sons and daughters of Jacob who go down as a big collective. And uh, Judah sent as a front runner, consolidating his place in the family. And uh, Jacob goes down and he meets the son he hasn't seen for decades. He's been robbed of time with him because of the treachery of his other sons and they meet can you imagine what it would have been like well it tells us they they weep they embrace and and we read that uh, Jacob says to Joseph now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive he's complete Jacob is complete he's seen his lost son and he can die now in peace and now Jacob has to live in the land of Egypt. And he gets to see Joseph for who he really is. Joseph is reigning over the land of Egypt. And that's where the next bit of the story goes. Where are all these Israelites going to live? Well, Joseph, in his position of power, hatches a bit of a plan. He says, um, we'll read in verses 33 and 34. Um, he says, let's go to Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh calls you in, and says, what's your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Um, Joseph's plan is to basically say, we look after sheep. He knows that the Egyptians, I don't know what their hang-up is about shepherds. They think they're dirty, untouchable. And what we can see is maybe the seeds of derision here that's going to be cascaded and made much worse in the Exodus. 
they're not favorable guests. Despite Joseph's brilliance, his tactical genius, the fact that he saved their entire nation and his rich kindness to the Egyptian people, um, they hate them. They're disgusting in their eyes. And we see uh, the signs of some sort of division come to place. But anyway, they go to Pharaoh and he gives them the best of the land. And um, we're going to summarize the next bit, but I just want to point out four strange observations that the, the author of Genesis is laboring to tell us here. And I just want you to remember the context for where this story is, is in the Bible. Sure, we're talking about the story of Joseph and how he answers the great question about the royal snake crushing seed. But he also sits this story just before the Exodus, just before they're going to go into Egypt, the place they are, and become slaves under the Egyptians for 400 years. Let's look at the relationship that Israel and Egypt have. The first one is that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Um, if we read in chapter uh, 47, we look in verses 7 to 10, we see something really strange. Jacob, this elderly, frail Hebrew man, comes up to the king of Egypt and blesses him. Let's see, let's read together. Joseph brought his father, Jacob, in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And they do not equal the year of pilgrimage of my fathers. There Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Already you're starting to see that the, um, the way the author is construing the relationship between Israel and Egypt is one where the, the patriarch of the, Israeli, of the Israelite family is blessing Pharaoh. And if we've been reading and tracking along with Genesis, it's, this blessing actually matters. It actually matters. Um, it's not just a thank you. Uh, again, it's not a good vibe. Um, the blessing of God's people actually kind of works. And they do indeed prosper. Egypt prospers. And so we start to see that maybe this author here is trying to undermine the idea that Egypt is really that powerful because, well, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. The second thing that we see is that Israel cultivates the land of the future king Pharaoh. Let's read together in verse 11, straight after that. Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Now, you may know a little bit about the history of what's going to happen, but Ramses is the name of the Egyptian pharaohs, the kings. Israel is not given some backwater suburb. Um, I thought about listing one. That's a bad idea. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, but they're given the best of the land. Let's say Clayton. They're given Clayton, if you think Clayton's really good. And, and it's like they're saying Israel made the hometown of the king. They cultivated it. They made it go. They built your city and not as slaves, but as free people. That's the relationship Israel has with Egypt. Thirdly, we see that Joseph... Oh, that says one, doesn't it? Apologies. <laughs> the third point is, and this is, this is where it gets a bit awkward, is Joseph actually sets up the slavery system um, that they get caught up in and makes Egypt rich. Let's read together. Um, there's a big slab of text. We're going to be reading from 18 to 21. Um, at this point, people are really hungry. They're coming to Joseph. They're saying, we don't have food. We'll sell you all our animals. He goes, okay. And he collects them all and gives it into the treasury of Egypt. And now they say, 
Um, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. By us, by us and our land, in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may be not become desolate. And what does, it, what does Joseph do? He, he bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and old, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Whoa, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Remember, they're about to become slaves for 400 years. Who set it up? Joseph did. Now, now I just have to say for a second um, that actually, I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to say this, but um, this type of slavery is, is, and they see it this way, is actually merciful. Look in verse 25. Um, they say, you've saved our lives. Uh, may we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We'll be in bondage to Pharaoh. It's a type of an indentured slavery. They, um, they see this as we're about to perish. We might as well work for you. But it is interesting that the system that Joseph sets up is the very one they get entrapped with later. But what's interesting about that is he's the one who makes Egypt rich. It's not an Egyptian. It's a Jewish. Oh, it's an Israelite. It's an Israelite. Joseph is the one who makes Egypt rich. Finally, point number four is that Israel prospers richly in Egypt. Just as Jacob was promised, we see in verse 27... The Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. These exact words are the same words at the start of Exodus, which kicks off the hatred of the Egyptians towards them. Israel bless, is blessed richly in Egypt and they bless the Egyptians. They make Egypt great again. However, they get caught up in it. I just want us to, to focus on on that for a second because it will give us some background for when we get to how, how um, uh, the Israelites are supposed to respond to their slavery. Finally, we come to the last part of the story, Jacob's final wish. He sees his son reign. He sees this great thing that he's done. He's made the land rich um, and it's coming to the end of his life. And he says uh, to Joseph, he gets him in. What does he do? In verse 28, when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, Jacob said. And then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Jacob has come to the end of his life. Are we, he's not dead yet. You know, there's a little bit more in the story. He's kind of coming to the end of his life. And he's seen many great things, but he's still in Egypt. And my question for you to think about is, do you think God kept his promise to Jacob? And before we answer that question... I just want us to focus on what we learn about the seed, what we learn about Joseph. We're going to come to Jacob in a second because as we've been talking about, the kind of big, I don't know, 
sausage of the series, the big question that's all wrapped up in is what do we learn about the seed? And we do learn things, um, things that we might have already learned. But what we learn is that the seed, just like Joseph, is going to be one who rules the nations. Um, and what we see is an image of the type of rulership Jesus has, qualified though. Do you see how Joseph rules the nations powerfully? He extends dominion over them. Um, and the nations, uh, they, they kind of rightfully fear him. They turn to him. He's not someone to be trifled with. And um, they also know, despite fearing him, that he's the one they have to turn to in their despair, that there's no one else who can save them. Only Joseph can do it. And he rules over the nations, particularly in Egypt. However, um, Jesus truly is a better Joseph, isn't he? Um, he doesn't set up a slavery system that encaptures his people for 400 years. No, uh, I think Jesus is more, it seems like more in the business of setting slaves free, setting people free from sin and death. But um, don't be mistaken. Um, just because Jesus is humble and lowly and meek, gentle and kind, um, and there's a softness to Jesus for sure, do not get mistaken that he's actually extending dominion now. That's how he rules. Je uh, Joseph's life shows us an aspect of Jesus' uh, lordship that maybe we forget sometimes, that he has dominion over the nations. Um, and if you're uh, not a Christian here today, um, I'm really excited for you to get to meet Jesus. Please chat to people about him afterwards. But don't make mistake that he's just a nice guy. Uh, kind of like Joseph here, he rules over the nations in power. That's enough to be said. We're going to come back to the question that we've been talking through today. Does God keep his promise to Jacob? I'm going to read out the start again, and I'm going to get you to discuss between each other, did God keep his promise? So remember, this is what God said to Jacob. He said, um, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I'll surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Take one minute, just chat to the person next to you. What do you think? Did he keep his promise?
Thanks. All right, let's um, let's come back together. Um, I, we got the clicker working, so thank you, Joel, Antonita. Yeah. You get off that thing. Um, so um, yeah, let's uh, straw poll. Who thinks yes? You got to commit to one. Yeah, and you got to raise it really high. Yeah, commit, 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 commit. Oh. Mm. Okay, and who says no? Significantly less. Um, who thinks that it's both? Yeah, I know. I didn't give the option. Yeah, two hands. Well, I think that it's helpful. Like, it's clear, isn't it, that um, he's actually still in Egypt, so he hasn't come back, right? Very literal. No. But I just want us to pause for a second, because isn't that uncomfortable to say? Isn't it uncomfortable to say that, that God doesn't keep his promise to Jacob? Well, he does, except he's just not going to be alive when he goes back, right? It's true. He gets to be buried with his ancestors, and that means something to him. But this is what I think the entire Joseph story is trying to tell us, and you've you got to see it, is that God's plan of salvation, his plan, is unexpected, surprising, and definitely not how we would see it. And you see that in Joseph's life, right? He had this dream that he was going to be um, kind of raised up in front of his family. They'd bow down to him. How did that go? Was it straightforward? Of course it wasn't. He went through decades of suffering before he even saw that come to pass. And I want to say two things about this. And I think it will help us to understand how promise fulfillment works in the Bible. And also how just we as Christians can understand how we can relate to God's promises. Um, the first thing is that parts give confidence to the whole. So what we see is that three, three out of four, 75%, that's like a distinction grade, right? Or H1A, yeah. <laughs> I will make you a great nation. That happens. They, they flourish. I will go down with you. Yeah, I think you'd say so. Uh, Joseph's hand will close your eyes. That will happen. He's met Joseph. He is alive. I will sure you bring you back again. Three out of four. Parts of the promise have started to come true. And I think this is what's important with um, promises in the Bible is that the parts ought to give confidence that the whole thing is going to come together. Uh, let, let, let's say you want to buy something on Marketplace. Like, I think it's the only reason I have Facebook these days. Um, and what you do is you, to make sure they're not sus, right, is you get a deposit. You get a deposit. And you're kind of guaranteed that the whole thing's going to come through. And if not, it's really it's on them, isn't it? Like that person has paid you some money. But you know they're going to come through. You have confidence. And it's in the same way that we should look at Old Testament promises, or really any promises in the Bible. When God has start to fulfill them, um, sometimes they take a lifetime. And in Jacob's case, it might even go beyond his life. But God will keep his promises. And it's really important to know that because there are some things in the Christian life that we look forward to. We look forward to being with Christ one day that, that haven't happened yet. But we know that these things will come to pass because God has already started working and chipping away at the promise he has made to his people. And the second thing, and this is where I think is, is where we want to kind of land today, is that um, Jacob's episode here is actually not just part of the Joseph story, but the entire Genesis story. Jacob ought to know that God keeps his promises, even though they're surprising. His grandfather, Abraham, was told that he'd have a child at an old age, literally laughable. And God didn't even see it come through then. It took years, but it did. It wasn't expected. It wasn't how they thought it would be. But God stuck to his word. 
even if it took time. And Jacob can actually see Joseph's dream come to pass right in front of his eyes. Remember how in the first chapter, Jacob is the only one who keeps in his mind that Joseph had this dream. All the other brothers are really angry about it, but Joseph, Jacob remembers. He has now seen his, his son, Joseph, elevated to a place of greatness. As his kind of arc completes and God finishes all the promises to Joseph, Jacob's got one left. What's he going to do? Well, he should look to his own son and see that God is going to keep his promises. He's already done it with Abraham. He's done it with Isaac and he's done it with his son, Joseph. And uh, I think that's where we want to go here today is we've been talking about um, Old Testament narrative reading tips. Um, and something we've already chipped away at early in the talk is that when um, God, what God's people should do is to look for, before looking forwards, right? To get hope for the future. They ought to look backwards as to what God has done. Um, now, you already know this ad. Um, it's an ad for something called Industry Super Fund. Um, if you have a job, you need super. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that um, until I got a job. You actually have to pick one. And what these people promise to do is that you put money into their, their thing and um, they're going to make it big. And then you get to the end of your life and you're counting on them to have succeeded so that you can pay for your health care, your retirement plans, etc. Right? You're kind of putting your life in their hands. But this is what it says at the bottom of that, right? Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. What else do you have? <laughs> like, I might as well roll the dice and pick any super fund, right? Well, uh, it's not just legal mumbo jumbo. Apparently, this is just sound economic advice. Everyone knows it. Past performance is no indicator of future performance. And you know what? I think they're kind of right. As human beings, you can't know the future, right? I mean, like Melbourne isn't a particularly uh, sharp one to think about. We don't even know the weather today. I thought it was going to be really rainy and then it was really sunny and I was sweating out and then it's raining again. You can't even know the weather, friends. And I mean, how many of you thought when you were nine and ten, um, you know, you probably looked to your seniors and you thought you'd be doing school with your friends in classrooms? Because that happened, right? Year after year after year. Could you have predicted that a pandemic would have taken that away from you? Would you have thought that? Did that cross your mind at all? Could have reading about the past helped you actually know? No, because we're limited, right? We can't know the future. I mean, I studied medicine here at Monash. Coronavirus was something I read about in my first year. I gave no thought to it. Little did I know I'd be spending most three years of my career fighting that thing. I had, I had no idea. I mean, reading about it wouldn't have helped me predict that it was going to come. You don't know what your future holds. And so in some senses, the industry super fun people, they're kind of right. But may I suggest to you, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know much about economics, but when it comes to relationship and a person, trusting a person, they're actually dead wrong. Because when you're trying to trust a person, all you have is their past performance, right? Um, think about it like this. Uh, if you, uh, it's an awful example, but say you meet someone who's cheated on their partner, right? And they end up with someone else, and then they cheat again, and that person's surprised. Should they have been surprised? Or say someone acts honestly at work, they make sure all the accounts are square, people are telling them to, to stash a little bit, but they do the right thing. 
and the boss promotes them. Why? Well, because they've acted honestly and they're more likely to do so again. When it comes to people entrusting their word, the record matters. The record matters. And that's how it is with God. God gives promises to his people and he actually demonstrates and anchors it in things that he has done. He tells Jacob, I will surely be with you. He's already been with his forefathers. He can remember those things. God makes promises to his people and he demonstrates them in history. And that's how they have confidence. And so we may be asking the story, what's the purpose of Joseph's story for Jacob? Let's narrow in just on Jacob, right? So he's unsure what God will do with his body, I guess, right? Where's he going to end up? Well, he can look back to the fact that Joseph kept his promises to Jacob, so to, to Joseph, right? And that should give him hope for the future. He can look back and realize that God kept his promise to Joseph. So, of course, he can keep it to himself, to Jacob. And in the same way, this is kind of illustrative of the whole narrative. What's the point of um, Genesis 37 to 50? Well, one of point of it is that when they're in slavery in Egypt, they can look back to the fact that God raised up Joseph and save them through him, even in dire circumstances, in exceptional circumstances. He had an awful life, but God preserved him and through him, all his people. And so as they look back, they can have hope for the future, even in the midst of terrible, awful slavery, strife, suffering, even if they don't know what the future holds. And then you may be asking the question, well, what is the purpose of Joseph's story for the Christian? Now you may be living in a hostile world, like, Let's, let's, we're not exactly like the slaves in Egypt, right? But you may be experiencing, I don't know, strife or difficulty, oppression, persecution, opposition in some form. And what you ought to do in that moment, rather than trying to just create hope for the future, right, is you should look to the past. So you can look to Joseph's story and you can see that God saved Israel through a famine, from a famine through Joseph. He did that. That happened. And that means that God is powerful to save and it should give you hope for the future. More than that, what have we been learning about this series? That Joseph is a reflection, isn't he? It's kind of like a mirror or a shadow of what the true royal snake crushing king is like. So as we look back to Joseph, what we see is, yeah, he's one who rules the nations, but his dominion, his kingdom ends in the slavery of his people. His dominion, his kingdom, has people die, starve, and perish in it. But there is a greater king, Jesus, whose kingdom lasts forever, in which his people will not starve nor perish ever. His kingdom is greater. We have been saying that he's a true and better Joseph. He will rule the nations, and he is now, but he's collecting a people for himself who will not perish. And how can I say that? <laughs> I've been telling you that I am a human being. I can't know the future. How can I say that with certainty? Because God has promised it and demonstrated it in history. As Christians, you look back, you can look back to Joseph, but you can also look back to this great event in history where God raised his son, Jesus, from the dead to life. He's demonstrated that Jesus powerfully will not perish. Of course, his kingdom will have people in it that cannot perish because he hasn't. He's untouchable, imperishable. 
I think this story helps us to understand how we as Christians ought to look at promises in the Bible. We need to remember sometimes they are slow, sometimes they are partial, sometimes they extend beyond our lives. But that doesn't mean that you cannot get hope from them. Look back. Look back when you are worried about the future and trust in Jesus. And I hope that at the end of this talk, that you too, like Jacob, in the midst of all the anxiety or the strife that you may have in your life, can trust God's word, that he will keep his promise. Um, And how we're going to end today is we're going to do something a bit different. We're going to be ending in song. And we're going to be singing a song called Christ the True and Better. Um, It's a song which uh, takes Jesus and shows how he is a better and truer version of various Old Testament characters. And I'm really excited for you to sing this song. I truly am. I'm really excited for you to sing it for, for two reasons. One, I would love for you to bed down this way of thinking about the Old Testament. That when you read it, you look to see Jesus, especially in key figures, because it's all his story. And the second thing is, um, we don't wait in anticipation for the seed to come like they had to. We know for a fact that he has come and that he has died and that he has risen again. And so that is something to be, to sing and praise God for. And so for those two reasons, I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. And I hope that as you sing this song, um, that it just will reinforce your trust that Christ truly is the royal snake crushing seed. And that you have greater promise, uh, greater um, confidence that with God, um, past performance does <laughs> actually indicate reliable, uh, reliable future performance. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.